Thank you for the extra effort to be here on a freezing cold day. Uh, when I got up this morning, I figured that my one concession to the cold weather would be it felt like a plaid shirt sort of weather day. <laughs> so I wore my plaid shirt today. It's casual Sunday <laughs> for me. <laughs> Seriously, thank you for the extra effort to be here on such a freezing cold day. When I was uh, 12, my parents took me and my two sisters on the most amazing vacation we ever had. We drove from Indiana to Yellowstone, then to Seattle, all the way down the west coast to Los Angeles, through the Grand Canyon and the Rocky Mountains until we were back home again in Indiana. It was our best vacation ever. And when we were in Los Angeles, we got to go to Disneyland, and I got to experience Mr. Toad's wild ride. Have you ever heard of it? It's legendary. As we were approaching the ride, actually it was a mock-up of Toad Hall, Mr. Toad's mansion. And there were these replicas of roadsters. And so we all climbed in our roadster and we waited for the ride to begin. When it started, all of a sudden we accelerated. We were heading right toward the front of Toad Mansion. We were about to crash into the big front doors when suddenly the doors swung open and our roadster swerved into the giant entry hall where we were headed directly for a bank of stained glass windows when at the very last moment there was a sudden U-turn. Now we were headed for the parlor. There were suits of armor on either side of the entrance to the parlor that were swinging their axes at it. So we axes at us. So we had to make another sharp turn. And now we burst through a wood-paneled wall. Outside, in the darkness of night, on some country road, going at breakneck speed, we looked ahead and saw headlights coming right for us. A head-on collision was imminent. So once again, we had to make another sharp turn. We were on a road now that said, wrong way, turn back, do not enter. We raced way too fast through a little village hamlet. A police car with siren raging was now chasing after us. In our attempt to escape, we turned onto a fishing pier, rough wood, bouncing as we go, about to plunge into the water when we saw an opening to turn into a warehouse that happened to be full of dynamite. We had to get out of there, so we crashed through another wall. And now we found ourselves in a train tunnel looked off at a distance and heard a whistle and saw the light of a locomotive coming for us and there was nowhere to go, no way to escape. We were trapped and that locomotive hit us head on. Suddenly the roadster stopped. Complete darkness. Complete silence. Complete stillness. And then we saw the face of a demon, at which point we realized 
we were dead and had gone to hell. And that was the end of the ride. The doors opened and we rolled back out into the sunshine. <laughs> in my young life, oh my goodness, in my young life, that was the most amazing, thrilling, frightening thing I had ever experienced. And though I did not realize it at the time, it was a foreshadowing of what life would be like. Ups, downs, twists, turns, near misses, crashing through walls. Welcome to life as we know it. You never know what's around the next corner or where you are really going. Life is a wild ride. And if you don't believe me, just ask Mary, the mother of Jesus. Over the last six weeks, we've been studying the life of Mary. Today, we come to the final, the sixth installment in our study of the life of Mary. We've been tracing Mary's life from the cradle when angels joyfully welcomed the birth of Jesus all the way to the grave when Jesus was brutally crucified on Calvary. It was over now. Just like with Mr. Toad's wild ride in Jesus' brutal execution on Calvary, it ended in utter darkness, utter silence, utter stillness. Jesus was dead. Mary wept. It made no sense. Why would God raise Jesus up just to cut him down? Everything was lost. It is finished. Uh, but not so fast. Because there's one more great event in the life of Mary yet to be explored that would cause that which made no sense to suddenly now make infinite good sense. Let's take a look. God, you are amazing. Life is amazing. Your plans are amazing. Today, as we look once more at the life of Mary now, with the benefit of seeing the whole story, open our eyes to understand more fully than ever before what you are wanting to teach us through the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We ask this in the name of Mary's son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So, as we saw six weeks ago, when Mary was just a teenager, 14, 15 years old, an angel appeared to her and told her that she was going to miraculously conceive and give birth to a son who was destined to be the long-awaited 
Messiah. And Mary knew exactly what that meant. Having been raised in the synagogue in Nazareth, she had heard time and time again the then conventional understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be and do. She understood well that the Messiah was was destined to be a great political and military leader who would liberate her people, the Israelites, from the yoke of Roman oppression. This was going to be, as it were, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, all of the dreams of Mary's people for freedom, for peace, for prosperity, for power were now about to be fulfilled in the here and now. And Mary's son was the one who was going to make it all happen. And as we saw when we studied Luke chapter 1, Mary was all in. She knew the plan. She knew exact. She had it all figured out exactly the way it was supposed to happen. She knew it would be dangerous and require daring but Mary was ready because she had faith but now having learned much of the story of Mary and with the benefit of hindsight we can look back and see that when Mary was a teenager and she first accepted this call on her life yes she had faith, bold faith, but it was an immature faith. No shame in that. No criticism intended. We all have to start somewhere. But we can now, with the benefit of hindsight, see that Mary, as a teenager, when she first began this journey, she had a faith that was characterized by certitude. I've got it all figured out. I know exactly what God is going to do. Her faith at the time was focused on herself and her people and what she and her people wanted and needed. And her faith was focused on the here and now instead of taking the eternal view, a longer view of things. Mary had it all figured out. She knew exactly what was going to happen and it was going to happen now in the here and now. The desires and the hopes of her heart and of her people were all going to be accomplished right here on planet earth. And I suppose we could be critical of Mary but in doing so we'd also have to be critical of ourselves because if the truth be told for most of us self-included when we began our faith journey it was probably because of felt needs. It was probably because we began to think you know maybe God can help me with some of these things that need to happen in my life and in the life of the people that I'm close to and so I guess it would be fair to say that most of us began our faith with a fairly self-centered view of what it was about and what God could do for us. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. 
Work hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Some of you younger people are looking at me like, what? It's an old Janis Joplin song that really cuts to the core of what an immature faith looks like. Lord, it's about me and my people and what we want and what we need. That's where most of us begin our faith. And Mary, it seems, in her own way, was in that place as a teenager when the call first came on her life. She had it all figured out. She knew what was going to happen. She and her people, their dreams were going to be accomplished in their lifetime in the way that they understood. But then, as we carried the story forward, we saw that things began happening to Mary and her son, things that weren't supposed to happen, things that weren't according to plan started happening to Mary and her son. And before long, instead of hailing Mary's son as the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus' own people began to oppose him with enormous opposition and with the opposition of their institutional religious leaders. It was not supposed to be this way that Jesus would experience all this opposition. God, what's happening to the plan? Mary could see the handwriting on the wall. Jesus had to change course in his ministry or he was going to run headlong into a freight train. But Jesus refused to change his course despite his mother's warnings that we saw in Mark chapter 3. Jesus refused to dial it back. He went rogue or so it seemed to Mary. And it ended up getting him killed. The dream was dead. The plan was ruined. There would now be no golden age for Israel. If only Jesus had listened to his mother. But now, everything was lost. Jesus was dead and Mary But three days later, picture it, try to imagine what it was like. The first, the first person that Jesus appeared to when he rose from the dead was Mary Magdalene. Try to imagine what it must have been like in that moment when Mary Magdalene first told Mary, mother of Jesus, what she saw and experienced. I picture Mary in a dark room in the home where they were staying in Jerusalem at that time, grieving the loss of her son, destroyed that, that everything that she had thought was supposed to happen, what she thought was God's plan for her life, for her son's life, for her people, devastated that it had all come apart at the seams. And as she's sitting in the dim light and grieving, the doors burst open and Mary Magdalene rushes in with excitement and energy. And Mary, Mary, she says, I just went to the grave, Jesus' grave. And, and, and when I got there, the stone was already rolled away. And 
his body was missing. My first thought is his grave has been robbed. His grave has been desecrated. The last great degradation. And I was so beside myself. I fell to my knees weeping when someone approached from behind me and called out my name just the way Jesus used to. Mary. I whirled around and there he was. Mary, your son, he's alive. I saw it with my own own eyes. I heard his voice with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. Your son has risen. And if you're Mary, what are you thinking? Could it be? Oh, I so want to believe this. But it's impossible. This does not happen. But I know Mary Magdalene, and, and I know she's got her feet planted firmly on the ground. I don't know. What, what should I believe? What shouldn't I believe? But then, in the days and the weeks that followed, other followers of Jesus began to experience similar resurrection appearances of Jesus. Our scripture text today tells us, Acts 1-3, that after Jesus' suffering, he began to present himself alive to them, his followers, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. One of those subsequent appearances was to James, the brother of Jesus, the skeptical brother of Jesus. Imagine the conversation between James, the brother of Jesus, and his mother, Mary, when he told her what he had experienced. I saw my brother, mother. He is alive. And then, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, it all culminates on a day when 500 of Jesus' followers gathered on the Mount of Olives to worship. And Jesus appeared to all 500 of them at once. And guess who was there? Mary. She finally got to see Jesus risen from the dead. We know that because of what today's scripture passage tells us. Today's scripture passage tells us that as they came down off the mountain after this experience, verse 12, Acts 1, 12, they, certain of those who were up there on the mountain who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, they returned to Jerusalem and they went to the upper room where they were staying, the house where they were staying in Jerusalem. And who were the they that had been on the mountain that returned to this house? Peter and John and James and Andrew. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary had now witnessed the resurrection of her son. And imagine <laughs> what she was now thinking. Oh, my God. I could not have imagined the plan that you had. And, and with the, the shock of Jesus' resurrection, no, no matter what differences Mary had once had with her son, she was now completely on board. 
She was gathering with his followers, praying with his followers. She finally got it. And it's at this point that Mary's faith reaches maturity, fully formed, seasoned now. For her and for the disciples, she finally reached that place of fullness, of mature faith. And what does that look like when someone reaches that place of mature faith in their life? Acts chapter 1, our scripture reading today, gives us a good description of what the faith of Mary and these first disciples looked like after Jesus' resurrection. We're told, for example, in Acts 1-4, that while staying with them, while Jesus was appearing to them over these 40 days, he ordered them, his followers, Mary and the disciples, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of God. Note the key word there, wait. It's not what we like to do. We hate the word. But now, Mary and Jesus' disciples, who thought that the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel in their lifetime, right then and there on planet Earth, now they understood that we often have to wait for God's plan to be fulfilled. We often have to wait to even understand what God's plan in our life means and is supposed to to look like. Not just that, but now post-resurrection, Mary and the disciples, instead of thinking they had all the answers, they had a lot of questions. Imagine having questions instead of all the answers. Acts 1, 6 tells us they, Mary and the disciples, asked him, Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Before, they just assumed, they knew that this was the time he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. But now they realized, we don't know nothing. We'd better ask some questions here. Lord, is this the time when you will now restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus replied, it's not for you to know. The times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Note that key phrase, it's not for you to know. Man, we hate that too, right? God, I need to know what I need to know now. What is your plan for my life? Why is all of this happening to me? There must be a reason. Why don't you tell me? And the Spirit of God says for you, it's not for you to know. Wait. It'll become clear when it needs to be clear. And so, waiting and questioning the disciples and Mary also in this post-resurrection period, all of them were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Mature faith drives us to prayer. Not prayers where we spend all our time telling God what to do because we've already figured out we got no idea what's supposed to be happening, but prayers that are primarily focused on seeking guidance. For 40 days, Mary and the disciples were meeting together and praying and saying, God, your plan is greater than our plan. Your plan is greater than our understanding. We may never fully understand your plan, but guide us as to what we're supposed to do next to cooperate with that plan. Mature faith is characterized by prayers 
for guidance much more than prayers where we're telling God what to do. And with all of this, they also came to understand that they were part of a story much bigger than themselves. Here we see in Mary and the disciples a mature faith. I would define a mature faith based on what we see in Acts chapter 1 this way. A mature faith has many more questions than certitude. Questions, not certitude. A recognition of how much we don't know. If you meet a follower of Jesus who wants to tell you all of the answers, that's probably somebody that's new to, or at least immature in the faith. If you meet a follower of Jesus who says, there is so much I don't know, now you're probably talking to somebody whose faith has been seasoned. What does a mature faith look like? A willingness to wait and let God's plan unfold. It looks like prayers focused on seeking guidance rather than constantly telling God what to do. A mature faith recognizes that we are part of a story much bigger than ourselves. When Jesus rose from the dead, it must have hit Mary like a ton of bricks. Oh my goodness, we were thinking so small. We were thinking about the political liberation of our people. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. But Jesus was thinking bigger, infinitely bigger. Jesus was thinking about the spiritual liberation of all people everywhere for all of time. In retrospect, Mary must have looked back and said, wow, God, your plan was much better than mine. I was wrong. Jesus, you were right. This is what a mature faith looks like. And Mary finally got there. And we would like to get there too, right? That place where we're resting in God instead of trying to control God. Where we're listening to the voice of God in our life. Where we're asking more questions than giving answers. We'd all like to get there, but how do we get there? Maybe the same way Mary did. This week I asked myself, what was it that happened in Mary's life, as we now know the story, that caused her, maybe forced her, to get from that immature place to that place of mature faith? And as I thought about it, I think there are two key things that made the difference for Mary, that will make the difference for us. How can I, how can you grow into a more mature faith? Two things. Here's the first key. Are you ready for this? Drum roll, please. There we go. The first key thing that has to happen for most of us to get from immature faith to mature faith is our expectations have to be shattered. Yikes. Again, not what we want to hear. Mary had it all planned out. She had it all figured out. She was trying to get Jesus to do something that was not the fullness of his plan. And, and she had to go through the painful process of the cross of Calvary. All of her expectations had to be shattered. But then, from that place of humility, she was open to, God, what's your plan? 
God, what don't I understand that I need to understand in my life? Most of us, most of us are like that. When we, when we come to faith, we think, now I know what God's plan is for my life, right? And, and I've got it all figured out. If you are in that mode, think again. Several years ago uh, on This American Life, this American Life uh, an NPR show by, hosted by Ira Glass, he did a special report in one of his shows on people who were happily living their plan B in life. There were about 100 people in the studio audience that day at random, and as they were moving through this show, he asked them all to think back to their young adulthood when they were first formulating the plan for their life, what they were going to do, what they were going to accomplish. And he called this your plan A, the fate that you were sure fate held in store for you. He then asked the audience by a show of hands, how many of you are still living your plan A? How many hands do you think went up among those hundred people? One, and she was 23 years old. <laughs> Let's do that same survey here. Think back to when you were a young adult and you were first formulating the plan for your life. That's your plan A. By a show of hands, how many of you are still living plan A? Raise your hand. Nobody. Nobody. How many of you are living plan B? Or C, D, E, E, F, G, H, right? <laughs> Amen. Yes. Yes. Every one of us in life will experience shattered expectations. The question is, what do we do with that? And do we let, us drive, let it make us better or worse? Drive us deeper into God or further away from God? Did you hear about the guy who got a new job as the crew chief for Old McDonald's Farm? I guess you could call him the new C-I-E-I-O. <laughs> Come on, this, this is good stuff, folks. This is good material. Work with me here. Every single one of us wishes we were the C-I-E-I-O in charge of our life. And life and God constantly remind us that we're not. So what happens when our expectations are shattered? Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. A realist is an idealist who's gone through the fire and been purified. A skeptic is an idealist who's gone through the fire and been burned. Which way will you respond when life disappoints your expectations? Will you let it purify your faith and draw you closer to God? Or will you let it burn down? your faith as you become a crusty old cynic. Ronald Rollheiser says, 
Crises of every kind will find us, but these crises enter our life not just as challenges to us to retain our balance and stability, but as invitations to stretch our hearts and minds. Every crisis includes within itself an invitation for us to move from being good people to becoming great people. Wendell Berry once said, I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I've been very much in charge of my life. I've made plans enough, but I see now that I've never lived by plan. Nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise. And whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had time to even expect it. And so when I have thought I was in charge of my story, I really have only been on the edge of it, carried along. This is probably because we are in an eternal story that is happening only partly in time. Nailed it. He nailed it. This is your life. This is, my, this is the wild ride that we are on. We don't know what's around the next corner. We don't really know where we're headed. We got some ideas, but only God knows. So is it going to be my plan or God's plan? And with this realization, with expectations shattered, that then brings us to the second, the other key thing that I see happening in Mary's life that caused her faith to move from immature to mature. That other thing was the resurrection of Jesus. Or to put it in the context of our lives, that second key thing is brushes with the supernatural that remind us of the transcendence of God. When we in our own life experience the miracles of God in supernatural or natural ways, when we witness the grandeur and the greatness of God, it brushes us back and causes us to realize, like Mary, I am part of a story that is so much greater than myself. It's not just about me and my people. We're part we're part of an infinite story that is weaving itself around us. When Mary and the disciples of Jesus witnessed Jesus' resurrection, it pulled them out of the here and now focus and caused them to realize that they were operating in the presence of an infinite God. That their narrow way of thinking that the Messiah is coming to help us in the here and now needed to give way to the greater understanding, Jesus' understanding that the Messiah had come to, to help all people everywhere throughout time. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that when we're trapped here in space and time. And this is when in the sermon I was going to tell you a time travel joke, but you didn't like it. So I'll keep moving on. Ah, oh, you're on it. First service people just slept right through that, but you got it. I feel vindicated. 
when we encounter the supernatural and awe comes over us, the timelessness and the greatness of God. And instead of saying, I got a plan, God, we find ourselves saying, oh my God, what's the plan? And how can I cooperate in that plan? Several years ago in one of our Oasis groups, uh, Scott Coolidge, uh, one of our members, shared with us a story about how when his grandfather was in the process of dying, Scott raced from Indiana back home to Alabama to be there and say his final goodbyes to his beloved grandpa. Scott's extended family was there as well, most of them still living in Alabama. And when his grandfather passed, as the extended family was saying their goodbyes and preparing to go their separate ways, Scott told his mom, I'll, I'll drive to your house. I'll stay at your house. She lived about an hour away from the hospital there in Alabama. Scott went down, got in his car, but as he sat there in his car, he was just so devastated. He needed somebody to process with, so he decided he was going to go visit an old friend of his first. So he texted his mom and said, I'm going to stop by so-and-so's house, then I'll, be, I'll head back to your house. But Scott says, I was just so overcome by what had happened that I ended up getting lost. I drove, he said, about 45 minutes. He says, it's like I was in a time warp. 45 minutes down the highway when I realized, where am I? And where am I going? And he told our Oasis group, he said, it was at that moment that I heard a voice, my grandfather's voice, saying to me, pull over, and take a deep breath. He did so. And then Scott says, as I sat there by the side of the road, I got this overwhelming sense of the presence of my grandfather there with me in the seat beside me. And then, Scott says, I audibly heard my grandfather's voice saying to me, don't worry about me. I'm fine now. Focus on your mother. She needs your help right now. I said, Scott, you mean to tell me you audibly heard that? He said, I know it sounds crazy, but yes. Now, I know Scott. He's not crazy. His feet are planted firmly on the ground. And when, when Scott heard from his grandfather post-resurrection, he says this sense of peace and serenity came over me. And I was able to drive on to my mom's house and focus on ministering to her. That's what happens when we have these brushes with the supernatural. It puts it all in perspective. And it causes us to realize, wow, I'm part of something infinitely greater than myself. And all of a sudden it makes sense that so much in this life does not make sense. Because if God is infinite and I am finite... That means there are bound to be an infinite number of things about this life that I'm not going to be able to understand at least till I get to the other side outside of space and time. And when we get to that place, maybe we can finally let go. Go with the flow. Stop trying to control what you can't control. Surrender. A mature faith, 
understands that we often have to wait to understand the plan of God. A mature faith has more questions than answers, but waits in that space, living the questions instead of pretending to know all of the answers. A mature faith focuses prayers more on requests for guidance than on telling God what to do. And a mature faith says, I am part of a story so much bigger than me. <sighs> That's a good place to get to in life. Where are you on that journey? Have you surrendered? Have you had enough expectations shattered to say, okay, I get it. Your plan, not my plan. We walk by faith, not by sight. An anonymous author puts it this way, here I am seeing what I can figure out when my life could be freed up by simply remembering that God is sovereign and has all things under control no matter the circumstances. Philip Yancey says, faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let me close with this. Back in 1812, uh, Adoniram Judson felt a call on his life to become a missionary traveling from the United States to Burma, the country we now call Myanmar. And he had a plan. He could see what God's plan was for his life. Through his witness, many people in Burma were going to find life in Christ. It was his plan A. But plan A was soon shattered. Judson instead ended up in prison, tortured and in shackles. When he eventually got out of prison, his beloved wife, Anne, passed away. For days after, he would sit by her graveside in utter despair. And three years after that experience, he would write, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. But Judson hung on by faith. He felt called to translate the entire Bible into Burmese for the first time. It took him years, feverishly working. By 1834, it was finished. And for the first time, the people of Burma had the Bible in their own language. But even that didn't seem to make a difference. Because when Judson died in 1850, what, 16 years after that translation, died in Burma, there were less than 25 converts, and he had not succeeded in establishing even one thriving church. A failure. God, it makes no sense. Why did you call me here if nothing was going to happen? But the seeds had been planted. And after he died, as the scripture continued to circulate in Burmese, over time, thousands upon thousands of Burmese people came to faith in Jesus. 
back in 1984 on the 150th anniversary of Judson's translation of the Bible into Burmese. There was a big celebration held in Burma where a Burmese man, Matthew Hyawin, put it this way. We remember how Judson loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Reverend Adoniram Judson. It was about 15 years ago that some Christians from Burma approached me and asked permission to translate the book I've authored into Burmese. The church owns the copyright on the book, and we, of course, gave the permission. But it surprised me. And then I did some research and discovered there are thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus in Burma to this day. And it all goes back to the seeds planted by one unsuccessful, shattered expectations person. And now, after this life and in the next, Judson can look back and say, God... Your plan was so much better than mine, so much bigger than mine. The same lesson that Mary learned. When Mary, as a teenager, embraced her, the call on her life, she had no idea where it was going to take her, but God did. Ups, downs, twists, turns, near misses, crashed through walls. Her son ended up on a cross instead of on a throne, but Mary held on to her faith. And eventually was able to say, oh, my God, your plan was so much better than mine. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a wild ride. What a journey of faith. So many lessons from her life that we can learn for ours. God help us to now live some of those lessons. Amen.